Father, we thank you for your word to us. God, we thank you for the privilege that we have in reading this as we do in our own language and without threat from the world preventing us from meeting together. So, Lord, we just pray that as we hear your word today, that it would be as if it was we're hearing it for the first time, that it would bring refreshing and encouragement to our hearts. And, Lord, it would cause us to know you more. There's no knowledge quite like knowing God. So, Lord, we pray that we would learn something that changes and transforms us as believers today. In your mighty name. Amen. Amen. So I'm just going to read this first passage of scripture. It's from John's first letter. We're just going to be focusing on verses 1 to 4 today. But we will work through the whole book over the next few months. So I'm going to read the first four verses for you just now. I'm in the ESV. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Amen. So this afternoon, we're embarking on a study through the book of 1 John. And 1 John is the longest of three short epistles written by John. And it's believed to have been written to Jewish believers in modern-day Turkey, in the Ephesus area, which is where the Apostle John lived towards the end of his life. And there's some debate amongst scholars as to whether the author of these epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, Because the ancient manuscripts of this first letter of John don't carry an inscription saying, you know, two Jewish believers in Ephesus from John, Obviously, it leaves the interpretation open as to who actually wrote it. However, to be honest, most conservative, I would say biblical scholars, do attribute this letter, 1 John, to the Apostle John. And to be honest, if you just read or if you've just heard those first four verses, what did it make you think of? Yeah, it made me think of that first chapter of John's Gospel, you know, in the beginning was the word. So when we see the first four verses of 1 John and then we parallel them with the first four or first even two verses of the Gospel of John, it's pretty clear that this is the same dude, okay? That seems clear to me anyway. And the themes also through this letter are themes of life. You know, God is life, the life. God is love and God is light. And if you read John's Gospel those are themes he uses there too, aren't they? You know, the light shines in the darkness. You've got this theme of light and darkness. You've got the theme, again, of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. All who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. There are those themes there in John's Gospel too. And even the sentence structure in the original language, and, and I, I 
been teaching, well, teaching myself. I've been having Greek lessons for the last year and a half. And 1 John is one of the first books I learned to read in Greek because the way it's written is so punchy and it's it's easy to understand for a beginner. And it's crazy to read a letter written like that. I mean, can you imagine opening a letter from a friend and it being starting off with a that which was from the beginning? There's no hello. There's no welcome. There's, <laughs> there's no preamble at all. It's just like a sucker punch to the face straight off the bat. It's, it's very intense. And, um, and I think this, this certainly is the work of the Apostle John. And as we take a, look, a closer look today at these first four verses, we will see how this letter only actually makes sense if we understand that it was written by one of Jesus' apostles. So all of the books in your New Testament were written, guess what, in the first century AD. They were all written in the first century AD. So when you hear people say, well... The New Testament was just written by followers of this religion called Christianity up to 300 years after Jesus died. You can say, that's not true. All of the books in the New Testament are actually written in the first century AD. Paul's epistles and the book of James and the Gospel of Mark being amongst the earliest. Uh, they believe, in fact, that Paul's letters to the Thessalonians were as early as 50 AD, just just under 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And Mark being the earliest gospel, Matthew and Luke being written around 60 AD, and John's writings generally are considered to have happened at the end, at the close of the first century AD in the mid-80s to mid-90s. Why is all that important? Why is that stuff that you as a Christian should be learning about? Well, for me, it means that the books that make up our New Testament are eyewitness accounts. They're eyewitness accounts and they were written during a time when other eyewitnesses were still alive. Well what's the significance of that? Why bother talking about something like that? It doesn't sound like your average Sunday preach at a church. Why are we talking about history? Well the point being is this. If the events the New Testament describes actually never happened then we wouldn't have a faith today. Christianity is a faith that's based on facts, isn't it? If you take the facts of Jesus' life away, his, his death, his resurrection, you're not left with anything substantive. You're not left with a real Christian faith. You see, Christianity, as Paul explained, is based upon the facts of Jesus' death and his resurrection. With those gone, you don't have anything called the Christian faith. And if the events the New Testament describes actually never happened and were made up by the disciples, the fact they were written within the first century AD while other eyewitnesses were still alive, these other eyewitnesses who didn't like what the apostles were preaching, they could have just written their own stuff and said, well, there's a bunch of loonies in Jerusalem talking about some guy that, you know, is a zombie, he raised from the dead. It, it never happened. It's all speculation, couldn't they? They, had a, they could have written that. They could have debunked Christianity from the off. But rather than finding documents from the first century by secular historians refuting the writings in the New Testament, what we actually find is documents supporting what the Bible says. You have a historian called Josephus, who was a Jewish Roman historian writing in the first century, actually backing up what the apostles said about Jesus. 
you've got Tacitus, you've got Pliny the Younger, you've got these other historians with no bias towards the Christian faith actually writing in support of what the Gospels said. They may not have been believers, but they agree with the fact that there was a man called Jesus, that this man was crucified, and that the early believers believed that he had bodily risen from the dead. Very important to know that your New Testament is not just a collection of fables and stories or moral teachings, it's actually a history book. So when we're reading our Bibles, friends, we are actually reading ancient history, aren't we? We're reading ancient history written by real people, and that helps me to be honest, to engage with the Bible more. When I realize I'm not just engaging with stories, teachings, but I'm engaging with things that were actually written by real people. These things happen. They are facts, historical facts. And I think that helps us if we let that sink in. Okay. I think so often many of us are used to going to the Bible in a certain way. We're perhaps used to reading the Bible during a devotional time, a time of prayer, and we're asking God to speak to us through his word. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But you see how if that's the only thing you ever do, you only ever say, Lord, I'm opening my Bible now. Lord, supernaturally, just help me open it on the right page. Whoa. You know, if we're just reading it like that, and we're waiting for it to flick open to a verse that's just going to blow us away. You're going to understand how we might be reading the book wrong. You see, you'd never pick up a history book and read it like that, would you? Now, this is more than a history book. You understand what I'm saying. And sometimes God will point out a verse in the Bible, just boom, out of the blue, and he'll speak to you through it profoundly. He does that. But we've also got to remember this is a book of facts and history. And so if we don't ever read it like that, we're actually not going to be able to learn, I think, what the Lord wants us to learn from it. So that's why these facts are important. And before we dive into First John, that's what we need to focus on. This is a book concerning real things that happened, real people that actually lived who had their own issues and things they were facing. So before we dive in to all of what John is saying and the larger themes and the theology and the doctrine, we have to have our history heads switched on. We've, we've got to screw on our history heads. We've got to go back to school a little bit and try and get underneath the text and find out what these issues were. What was happening? What situations was John addressing here? So this is all by way of saying that when we look at this book, we're reading it. This was written 2,000 years ago. It was written in a world that no longer exists. The way of life these people knew was just altogether different to what we know today, wasn't it? The things that they valued aren't necessarily the things that we value today. And so when we study these books of the Bible and study them, we must. It's, it's important that we as a church, Hope City Church, all of us are studying the Bible. All of us study the Bible. So when we study them, we've got to be aware that we're wearing lenses. I'm coming to the Bible with 21st century lenses on. I value 21st century things, you know. And so I want to try and either find a way to take these lenses off or I want to find a way to thin them out a little bit. So I'm getting in touch with the text and what it was speaking to at the time. So by way of example, the main aim of First John of this epistle that we're reading was actually to warn believers about false teachers 
false teachers, people who were teaching a different Jesus, who were hanging out with them. They were friends with these believers and they'd begun to teach things that John considered not to be the authentic message of Jesus Christ. Now, in the modern church, here's an example Here's an example of how we have different values. We don't necessarily value the same things that they did in the early church. In the modern church, it's kind of almost unheard of, isn't it, for a pastor to stand up and publicly warn their congregation about false teachers, isn't it? And damnable heresies. It's just not the done thing. Uh, it's very uncool. In fact, uh, there's a Christian rapper called Shai Lin who says that today the only heresy is saying that there's heresy. And... I think he's kind of right there, you know. There is a little bit of a taboo thing around talking about non-authentic, non-orthodox teachings in the church. But this is something that John speaks to a lot. This is something that you'll come face to face to in the New Testament time and time again. It's something that Paul wrote about very uh, extensively. Um, so in order to get this this book and really understand it... Um, we, and I include myself in that, we, we've got to resist the urge to just run, rush through to the candy floss moments, you know, to 1 John 4, 16, God is love, wow, well that's the climax, we're going to get there, but in order to really appreciate that mountaintop when we get to it, we've got to go through the journey, okay, when we go climbing mountains, if you do a medium walk with Dean, he'll tell you what a medium is, if you ever do a medium with Dean, right, he'll usually end up on the top of some high mountain, but Dean, is it not true that half the enjoyment, in fact more than half of the enjoyment of one of your medium walks is the journey, isn't it? It's not just plonking yourself at the top. There's actually a process that needs to be gone through in order to appreciate the mountaintop. All right? Same is true when we read the Bible. We'll get to God is love and we'll get to perfect love casts out fear. But in order to get there, we've got to do some navigating. So let's start where we start here in 1 to 4. And I believe by the time we get to that, that climactic moment, we'll get it and we'll understand it for how John meant us to understand it. So, as I said, verse 1, it doesn't start with a, we proclaim to you, actually. In some versions of your Bible, the authorised version, I think, says, we proclaim to you. Uh, it sort of jumbles up the Greek. Actually, the way the Greek starts is literally how the ESV has it, which is, that which was from the beginning, okay? It's a very strange way to start a letter, isn't it? That. There's... There's, there's no introduction, uh, there's no introduction of the subject matter even, it's just that. And we don't get to see what the that means until later on in this little passage here, verse 1 to 4. It's almost like kind of opening a letter and, and getting hit by a 2 by 4. It's, it's, it's epic, uh, there's zero preamble, it's just right at you. So we have this, that which was from the beginning. What does the apostle want them to catch and understand about this? He, he doesn't make the subject clear. We don't really know what he's talking about at this moment. But I think when we read this, that which was from the beginning, what might Jewish ears be thinking of? What might a Jew in the first century be thinking of when he hears that which was from the beginning? Well, Genesis 1. Genesis 1. In fact, the words used in the Greek for beginning, from the beginning, is the same Greek words you'll find in the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek Old Testament, in Genesis 1, that which was from the beginning. So what will Jewish ears be hearing? They'll be hearing this. John's talking about God. John is talking about God. Okay? 
And he then immediately goes on to say that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. He clarifies it. It's not just a scene in a sense of we saw it spiritually or maybe we saw it in a kind of uh, sense of knowing something. He says we've seen it with our natural eyes, which we've looked upon with our eyes. We've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John is talking about God. But not just a God who is kind of ethereal, who's a concept, um, but actually a God who he personally has heard, who he has seen with his own eyes and has touched with his hands. In fact, that Greek word for touched, it means handled, right? It's like handling your Bible. It says, uh, this God I've handled, I've heard, I have touched uh, with my hands, I've seen with my eyes. What John is talking about to the Jewish hearers, they would have been clear about these two things. John is talking about something that is very God and very human. Very God and very human. And God isn't just saying that I have seen these things and I have heard this and I have touched this, but he's using a first person plural, isn't he? We. We. Well, who's we? You know, John is writing at the, the end of the first century, probably. Probably most of the apostles by this point have been martyred. But he's saying we. What can he be talking about? We have heard him. We've seen him. We've looked at him. Well, in fact, when you say we to somebody, we have done this, I think first off I'm getting this sense of authority. Okay, it's not just this one man's testimony. He's actually saying there are others who can back me up in this. There are others who have had this same experience. I'm not just trying to tell you about some hyper-spiritual encounter that I've had with God that I'm asking you to join me in. He's saying, no, we, we have been eyewitnesses to this God-man. We're not like those hokey, hyper-spiritual teachers you've started hanging out with. And, and these people that John was uh, referencing that he's he's teaching against these false teachers um they were teaching what we call gnosticism now so this was the idea that god god is real uh, god is out there god is the creator of all things but that um jesus was just a way of finding out more about god they they thought jesus was great they thought he was definitely from god but they didn't think he was truly human in the way that you or I are. They didn't think he had a real body. Because for them, for the Gnostics, the spiritual realm was what was good and the natural was evil. Anything physical could not be associated with God because it was wrong, it was bad, it was broken. So they believed that yes, Jesus was good and that many of his teachings could help us to know God more. But that Jesus couldn't have come in the flesh because the flesh is evil it's corrupt it's broken okay so john is making a point here isn't he? he's saying listen we the apostles we the eyewitnesses have touched jesus we've made contact with him we've heard him we've seen him we're not out here trying to make ourselves look super clever and hyper spiritual and share with you some knowledge some secret knowledge that we have about god we're telling you these things because we're witnesses of them Okay, we're telling you them because we've actually physically engaged with God. And these apostles that he's talking about, this is what most commentators believe that he's talking about when he says we. Now, these apostles are those 12 plus Paul. Paul's a little bit different, but these apostles are the 12 who Jesus chose as disciples. You remember? He chose 12 disciples. And these 
men were those who were with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry, sorry, right up until his death and resurrection and his ascension into heaven. So they had a really critical role in the building of the early church, didn't they? The apostles were personally appointed to be not only the teachers of Jesus' message, but eyewitnesses to everything that happened. And I keep saying this, eyewitnesses, and I will keep going back to it because it's really important to the apostles. It's not just John that mentions this, but Peter too talks about being an eyewitness. Luke in his gospel talks about things he's witnessed. He's actually hearing the testimony secondhand from, we believe, Peter. It's the testimony of, uh, sorry, not Peter, of uh, of Paul who heard from Peter. So they're constantly making reference to the fact that they're eyewitnesses. So apostles, the 12 plus Paul, had to be what? They had to be eyewitnesses. If we read in the first chapter of Acts, that's the only time in the New Testament when we see an apostle being selected. This is after Judas has died and there is a selection process to replace Judas uh, by somebody else to make up the 12 apostles. And in that first book in Acts 1 verse 20 and 21 you read about the selection criteria and what it took to be an apostle. You see Peter doesn't say now, if anybody here really senses a call from God to be an apostle, raise your hand, we'll pray, and we'll see if you're the one that's going to join us. No, he doesn't say that. He says, it must be somebody who has gone in and out with us from the time of Jesus' baptism by John um, until, I believe I haven't got the scripture open now, but until his uh, ascension. Okay, so through the whole of his ministry. And it says, and they will become with us a, res a witness to the resurrection. So you had to have been able to have been with Jesus, to have seen him. You had to be a witness to his resurrection. That's what it took to be one of these apostles. So they knew Jesus. They had lived with him. They placed their hands in his wounds like we read about Thomas doing in, in John 20. Uh, it's these apostles, the 12 plus Paul and their testimony that's the foundation of of the church. It's the foundation of this church here today, all those years ago. And Paul is the exception to some of these rules. He's a bit odd. And if you read Paul talking about his own experience, I think you find that in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Paul recites an ancient church creed. It's amazing in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. It's actually an ancient creed uh, that was recited early in the church, within five years of the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul says about himself, you know, and then finally he appeared to me, last of all to me, as one born out of time. So Paul acknowledges that his apostleship's a little bit different than the twelve, but there's no doubt, even amongst the other apostles, that Paul was an apostle. So these are very important characters in the building up of the early church. And first and foremost, when we think of apostle, we've got to think, eyewitness, somebody appointed by Jesus who had seen all these things happen, whose testimony then could be trusted because they'd seen it. Now to dive back to this this issue with the false teachers, I know we're moving at pace but there's quite a lot to get through. Um, the false teachers who were leading the believers astray, like I say, they were, they were teaching this thing called Gnosticism, which is a mix of both Christianity, so they, they believe some of Jesus' teaching, it's a mix of that and philosophy, and they melded them together. 
So they taught that Jesus only appeared to be human, but he wasn't truly human. That his resurrection wasn't actually physical, but it was spiritual. Um, and you might think, well, there's not too much difference between perhaps what the apostles are teaching and what these other people are teaching. They they agree with Jesus' teachings. Uh, they think he's from God, right? So, yes, they disagree on whether this was physical or spiritual, but, but why bother making such a fuss about it, John? You know, they, they agree that Jesus is a good guy. They agree he's somebody to be followed. But I think this is the crux of the issue that we want to get to in John 1, is that for John, this was a major, major issue. You see, any other Jesus, other than the Jesus preached by the apostles, is a Jesus that can't save. It's a Jesus that can't deliver you from your sins. It's a Jesus that can't make you right with God. If Jesus was God but not truly human, how could he pay for our sins on the cross? And if he was human but not truly God, then how could he possibly take the full wrath of God, which is infinite, upon himself? You can see how issues immediately begin to arise when you tamper a little bit with the apostles' proclamation of Jesus. And again, you might think, well, why are we learning about Gnostics? You know, there, there aren't people walking around today called Gnostics, are there? There aren't people with these weird and wonderful ideas about the spiritual and the natural. Well, I think I'd agree with what most biblical commentators say, is that there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. It's the same of heresy, okay? All modern heresies are just rebadged versions of these same false teachings that we find here in First John there's nothing new under the sun. Talking about Gnosticism, see the New Age, right? See the Oprah Winfrey Jesus. The Jesus that, oh, he's all love. His teachings are all good. They can teach us how to live a better life. You ask her if Jesus' atoning sacrifice in the cross was to do with sin, she won't like that. What about the Jesus of the shack? Again, Jesus doesn't need to pay for sins according to Paul, C um, Paul Young. Sin is a punishment of it, all of itself. There's no need for Jesus to pay for sins on the cross. Just the very act of sin in itself is enough punishment according to that God and that Jesus. Is that what the apostles preached? No. No, Jesus necessarily had to pay for sin. He had to pay for sin and he had to take the wrath of God against sin on himself. He had to drink the cup of God's wrath. The New Age Jesus doesn't do that. So therefore, the New Age Jesus is a Jesus who can't save. <coughs> we talk about Arianism. How many of you have heard of Arianism? This is not the Adolf Hitler Arianism with blonde hair and all of that. This is a belief that Jesus was just a man. He wasn't God. He definitely came from God, but he's not God. Well, we're still wrestling with that heresy today. See Jehovah Witnesses. I've engaged with many of them love Jesus. Jesus is from God. But is he God? No, he's not God. He's the only begotten. He's the firstborn of all creation, they'll say. And they'll twist the scriptures and turn Jesus, the God-man, into just a man. What happens then? Well, God can't pay. God can't take, sorry, a man can't take God's whole wrath upon himself. He's only a finite being. Only God could take the full wrath of God, if that makes sense. So, finally, that John teaches this. He says the whole purpose of him delivering this message about Jesus to them 
was that they may have fellowship with them, with the apostles. You may have fellowship with us, he says. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. I think that's verse 3. So the point of John's preaching to them and them receiving this message is what? It's so that they could have fellowship and John teaches, this is a quote from a guy called Douglas Sean O'Donnell, is a, a biblical commentator, and he says it better than I could. He says this, John teaches that whoever wants to have fellowship with God must first be joined to the apostolic testimony about God incarnate. Divine fellowship demands apostolic fe- fellowship. Put metaphorically, if we want to hold the hand of God and stay in fellowship with him, We must hold the apostles' hands and stay in fellowship with their God-appointed and God-approved testimony concerning Jesus Christ. Now we here at HCC, we are an apostolic church in the sense that our faith is is in the Jesus Christ who the apostles preached and no other. That's what an apostolic church means, that your faith is the faith that the apostles preached at first. It doesn't mean that you believe in present day apostles in the same sense that there were in the New Testament which I don't I don't think that's possible do I think that somebody may be anointed perhaps in a way that might look apostolic like a church planter or a missionary sure but do we call them an apostle no no because the office of apostle was represented by somebody who had witnessed Jesus Christ who was an eyewitness who fulfilled all the criteria of Acts 1 20 and 21 so that given, you can be an apostolic church without believing in apostles today. Very much so. In fact, I believe the true apostolic churches are the ones that do believe the first century witness of the apostles. And if others come in saying they're apostles and teaching a slightly different Jesus, we know what to do with that teaching. We know what to do with those people. And John is very clear about how we respond to that. He says, He says this, the fellowship which John spoke is translated from the Greek word koinonia. How many of you have heard of that before? That's a very popular word to use, koinonia. It means fellowship. And John uses that word four times, four times in this epistle. And it means a slightly different thing, actually, each time he uses it. There are two main meanings. The first is this, that koinonia, fellowship, is based on agreement. Agreement as to what the facts of the matter are. Ah, so we have fellowship based on facts, okay? So we've got to agree on that first before we can have koinonia, according to John. He says, if you agree with us, the apostles, on the facts of the gospel, then we've got koinonia. And guess what? If you've got koinonia with the apostles, you've got koinonia with the Father and with the Son. If you continue, he says, to welcome these false teachers into your church, then what you actually have is koinonia with them. You've got fellowship with them and therefore you cannot have fellowship with us because fellowship with the apostles comes through agreement as to what the facts of the gospel are. And if you have koinonia with the false teachers, do they have fellowship with God and his son? No. How can they? So John is making something clear here. He's saying, hey, listen, if you want fellowship with God, you have fellowship with us. You have fellowship with us by agreeing on what the gospel is and who Jesus is. That he's both God and he's both man. And we're getting in here to Christology. How many of you have done a bit of Christology before? That's the study of who Jesus is. So we have fellowship with God, with Jesus, 
through the gospel, through what the apostles said about Jesus. And John is saying, listen, if you want to continue in fellowship and having koinonia with these people who are teaching a different Jesus, you are at risk of forfeiting your fellowship with us. And through the apostles comes fellowship with God. I'm not saying there are mediators. I'm not saying this is like the Marian doctrine of the Catholic Church where you you got to have um, relationship with, with Mary and, and, and all these saints and that's how you get merits and things like that. It's not that we have to go through a kind of a mediator to get to Jesus, but it's simply that the message of the gospel, the message of who Jesus is, is found in the Bible. It's found by the apostles. And this is important because I read some dumb stuff on social media really dumb stuff i read one the other day which was basically saying why do people have to say that they've got a biblical worldview why do people say i believe the bible shouldn't they just say i believe jesus and i was thinking how dumb how do you know who jesus is apart from what is said in the bible about jesus if we don't have the bible and the testimony of the apostles you don't know who jesus is jesus becomes a figment of your imagination he's a god in your own making and what do we call that that's idolatry okay so in order to have fellowship with God, we've got to assent to these facts. Now I'll finish off here, and I'll just say this. The challenge for us here today is to ask ourselves, is the Jesus that we're believing in the same Jesus who the apostles preached? Am I careful with the facts of the gospel? Do I, do I mind what I hear preached? Do I question what I hear preached? That's really important, isn't it? Paul says in the book of Acts, doesn't he, about these Berean believers who went to the Bible to test out what they were hearing and he commends them for it. Hey, look, it's the Westminster cat. I'll tell Bucky. <laughs> so am I careful what I listen to? Am I bothered when I hear the facts of the gospel toyed with? Or do I feel like perhaps I can just chew the meat and spit the bones of everything? And I think there's a level there's a level of sensibility to that. We should uh, be able to listen to somebody completely snarl up the gospel, right? So that we can pick it apart and say, no, that's wrong here and here and here and here. But if we somehow think that we can drink at the well of false teachers and not be infected by it, we're wrong. We're wrong. Paul says, don't have fellowship with these people. He didn't advise these Christians he was writing to that actually it was good to keep listening to these other teachers and that their differing views would actually help them and give them a different perspective on things. You know, they've, they're carrying a different revelation. They've got this revelation of love and, you know, we've got this revelation of truth. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say they have to take a balanced view on things. That there are lots of different perspectives about who Jesus is and we just need to kind of take a bit from every single one. He doesn't say that, does he? He's very clear through this book that unless you have fellowship with the facts of who Jesus is and what he came to do. You can't have fellowship with God. So in conclusion, Christianity is a faith like no other. It's based on the facts. And without these facts, without the death and resurrection of Jesus, the whole belief system falls apart. Christianity is not a faith that's about moral betterment, isn't it? It's not. I've heard people say before, oh yeah, you're a Christian? Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'm into Buddhism because I'm trying to be a better person as well. And you're like, it's not about that. It's not about that. Christianity is about realizing you are no good. You are broken. You can't succeed on your own. You've tried and you've failed and you're ready to give up and give your life to God. 
Christianity is a religion, as R.T. Kendall says. It's for people who are ready to die, not about living. It's a religion about teaching men and women to die and give their life to God, not about teaching people to just try to live a better life. Christianity is different. It's not one way amongst many to be a better person. It's not one way to try and find God. It's a religion where God finds you. Do we believe the Jesus who the apostles preached? Do we believe that he was fully man? You could touch him. He he needed to go to the toilet and things like that. He was fully man, but he was also fully God. Do we know that Jesus? That's the only Jesus who can save. The Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses, yeah, it might sound plausible perhaps. Maybe it makes sense to them in a worldly sense, but that's not a Jesus who can save, and that's not the Jesus who's mentioned in the New Testament. And are we careful to appraise what we listen to? Will you appraise what you're hearing today? Will you ask me questions about it if you don't understand? I hope so. That's what we're called to do, isn't it? To weigh everything according to the word of God. Are the preachers that we listen to leaving certain things out? Do they only speak about the blessings of the Christian life and never warn against sin or false teaching? Do they talk intellectually and high-mindedly but without love in their heart? Do they make it sound like they've got hidden revelations about God that only they know? Our hearts have got to be tuned into this stuff. It mattered to the apostles, so it's got to matter to me. Because Jesus said, we know that false prophets have gone into the church disguised as harmless sheep, not as ravenous wolves. They aren't going to look like ravenous wolves. They're going to look like really nice, tidy, well-to-do people with good intentions. A false teacher is never going to sound harmful. They'll be the ones saying the things that make us feel good, that we want to hear. So it's important we, we stick close to our Bibles especially at a time like this when we're seeing lots of stuff going on. It's important we stick close to the Bible, to what the apostles said about Jesus, to what the Old Testament says about Jesus. It's through this word and this word alone that we've got fellowship with God. So let's pray and then we're going to get the the youngsters back and we're going to pray for them because they're heading back to school this week. So it'd be nice to pray for all of them and also teachers as well who are heading back into school. Um, but why don't we just take it, I'll pray quickly and then if we can just split up into groups and just process and, and have a little bit of time praying for one another, that'd be great. So Father God, I thank you so much that we believe in a supernatural Jesus. This isn't just a moral teacher, but he's God. He was from the beginning, before the dawn of creation. I also thank you, Lord, that you came in the flesh. You didn't leave us alone to speculate about who God was and is, but you sent your son into the world, born of the Virgin Mary. And he lived bodily amongst us, Lord God. He lived as a man. And through that we know, Lord God, that you are with us in all of our trials, in all of our sufferings, in all of our challenges. We know that you've experienced them that you've lived through them and more. And we thank you, Lord God, that we are and do have an apostolic faith. We thank you for the ministry of these first century apostles. We thank you that it endures to us today, even 2,000 years later, through the Bible. 
that you by your Holy Spirit have made sure these documents have not been corrupted over the years but have been kept pure and are of use to us today. And also, Lord, I pray that you'd help us guard against false teachings, against things that sound plausible, that sound good to the ear, that make sense to us in a natural way. Keep us guarded against these things and help us to love your Bible above all things and weigh every word that comes to us and discern the spirit in which it comes. Help us to love your word and to love you, Jesus, with a whole heart. Amen. Amen.